0: You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for August 16th, 2020, the 11th Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by John Schultz. It's based on Matthew, chapter 15, verses 21-28. through 28. In another life, what seem, in what seems now like in a galaxy far, far away, I was affectionately referred to as Father John as I ministered in the Catholic Diocese of Saginaw, Michigan. I loved that role. My heart was in it. But after a number of years, I realized I could not fulfill that ministry while living alone, and so I resigned my commission and married Karen, my wife of 43 years, this past Thursday. However, despite all that, because my tradition says John, if you're married, you may not minister publicly. I am still ordained, and thus the stole that I'm wearing symbolic of that fact. When I was in the church last week going through the protocol of this situation, preaching without a congregation, I told Father Justin, uh, I said, you know, whenever I'm, as many years as I have been resigned, whenever I'm in this role of preaching, Uh, It's like I enter a time warp, and I'm pulled back, and here I am. And I'm very grateful to Father Peter as rector of this congregation, also Father Justin and Reverend Elizabeth for their invitation to preach to you today. Let's begin by inserting ourselves into today's passage from Matthew's Gospel. There's an unspoken prejudice here, I think, that underlies this account. Matthew simply IDs the woman in that passage as a Canaanite, but as such, she would have belonged to a centuries-old line of idol-worshiping polytheists. The Canaanites enjoyed a whole pantheon of gods and goddesses, and among these were chiefly Baal, the god of fertility, and one of his consorts, Astarte. When the Lord, when the disciples were saying to Jesus, Lord send her away, I really think underlying here was, uh, and they said, she keeps crying out after us. I really think what they were meaning to say, and we're covering it up, Lord, Lord, Psst, Lord, she's a Canaanite, she's one of those people. Enter then a visceral, perhaps a visceral negative feeling that we call prejudice. A little sidebar story here, 800 years before this account, the prophet Elijah was, uh, pre- was prophesying up in the territory of the Canaanites, and the priests of Baal there were giving him a very rough time, to say the least. finally got tired of this, so he said, I tell you what, I challenge you to a contest. You priests of Baal, you prophets of Baal, you build your own altar here and put on it your whatever animal you want to have as a Holocaust, and you pray then to Baal and ask him to send down fire from heaven to consume the the animal offering. And let's see what happens. Now I'll build my altar here and I will put a Holocaust offering on it as well, but we'll wait first. I'll wait and see what happens with you. So they went on and on and on and hours passed and they were screaming and carrying on and moaning and they had slashed themselves, especially in their scalp and blood was coming out as was their custom and absolutely, of course, nothing happened. And then Elijah said to uh, his uh, attendants there, fill seven buckets of water, pour them all over the animal on the altar of Holocaust, cover the altar with water dig a trench here, fill the trenches with water. And then he prayed to his God, Yahweh, Yahweh in the Hebrew. And suddenly fire came down from heaven, consumed the animal, consumed the altar, lapped up all, dried up all the water in the trenches. End of story. Back to the Canaanite woman. She cries out and asks Jesus to cast out a demon from her daughter. But he doesn't react neg- negatively at first based on her ethnicity as such. Instead, he simply states that his obligation is first of all through the children of Israel, the Jews. But she keeps pressing him. And this time he tries a different tactic. It's not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. This sounds like a horrendous term, but given the idiom of the day, The term was used in sacred scripture to mean anyone who was a non-Jew. I want to take a look, if we we forward to Luke's gospel in chapter 7, he changes it and he mitigates the expression. He doesn't say dogs, he says pups. And he said it's not right to throw scraps to the pups that are under the table, um, under the children's table. And uh, noteworthy here is the fact that that Luke places both children and pups in the same house under the same table. Notable. Another story. When I was a teenager growing up in Bay City, we had, uh, uh, I suppose, Snoopy was a mongrel dog, certainly a mixed breed. But to look at her you would say she was a a shrunken English setter and an excellent hunter. Anyway, Snoopy was my dog and I taught Snoopy to sit up and beg for food and she could sit up on her haunches for five, ten minutes at a time till you looked at her and gave her uh, a snippet of whatever and then she would be satisfied. Well, I, uh, I used to sneak food, uh, trying to carry on a table conversation without averting my, my gaze to my mother, I would try to surreptitiously sneak a little orts under the table and Snoopy would grab it out of my hand, but I always got, usually got caught, John, don't feed the dog at the table. More seriously, let's switch now to chapter four of John's Gospel, to the passage that I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, are quite familiar with. It's the story of Jesus meeting the, uh, the woman at the well of Jacob. John not only notes that she was a Samaritan, but in ther- parenthetically inserts, Jews have nothing in common with Samaritans. Nine centuries earlier, approximately, they had separated themselves from the southern kingdom and formed the northern kingdom of of Israel. And for a long time now, they no longer went down to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. And since the time of the exile, some five centuries before, they had become a sort of hodgepodge of various ethnic groups, thanks in a large part to the Assyrians who played a major role in making that happen. Bottom line, they were certainly no longer considered Jews. There's a double whammy here. One that could have been the basis for a very negative prejudicial situation. Not only was it unheard of for a rabbi to speak publicly with a woman, but Jews would never request water or food from any Samaritan, because both they and their utensils and their food were considered unclean. When they returned from having gone into the city to procure food, the disciples expressed their shock and dismay at what they saw, but none of them dared question the master about it. At any rate, what does Jesus do? He proceeds to cut through the societal norms of the day, this anti-Samaritan prejudice, and treat the Samaritan woman with both dignity and respect. Now we switch to Luke's Gospel, Chapter 7. The Cure of the Centurion's Servant. As a Roman centurion, he would have been in charge of approximately 80 to 100 soldiers. Centurion literally in Latin meant 100, but that wasn't always true. Anyway, as a centurion, he was the embodiment of the enemy, the face of the occupation forces. He represented Rome, detested Rome. Now, as a Jew, Jesus would have had every reason to react negatively to his request, which had been sent through emissaries. Emissaries came and they said to Jesus, you know, the centurion asks that you come and cure his servant who is lying very ill and perhaps near death. But um, it's enough for us to take the word back to him. But Jesus says, no, I'll, I'll go. But as he gets nearer to the centurion's house, The centurion sends other messengers to say, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should even come under my roof. And that's why I was not even worthy to come down in the first place and make my request in person. But please, I know what authority is and you have it. I have it, you have it. Say but the word and my servant will be healed." And Jesus, instead of falling into the pit of prejudice as him being a Roman, he accedes to the centurion's request as stated. Lastly, we t- let's take a look at also Luke, but now chapter 19. We find ourselves here in the town of Jericho in the story of Zacchaeus, who was not only a tax collector but chief tax collector in that region. And Luke notes he's a very wealthy man. Now, tax collectors were Jews employed by the Romans to collect the Romans' taxes. The Romans had it all figured out. If we use Jews to collect the taxes, they'll get more than we ever could have gotten ourselves anyway. And people like Zacchaeus were considered by the Jews sellout traders and they were very despised by their own people. And not only were the tax collectors such as Zacchaeus, paid by the Romans, but they also were on the take, and they siphoned money off the top and pocketed something always for themselves. The Romans knew this, the Jews knew this, but it was the system. And at any rate, tax collectors were definitely considered nothing short of sinners. Anyway, after being, uh, being very short, Zacchaeus climbed a sycamore tree to get a better look at Jesus as he passed by. He couldn't see over the heads of the people in front of him. And not only does Jesus, is he not only sucked into the, the uh, prejudice that would have surrounded the very name of Zacchaeus and his profession, but he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down, because this very day I'm going to stay in your house. Zacchaeus scrambles down quickly and he addresses Jesus, Lord, not only will I give half of my wealth away to the needy, but if I have defrauded anyone, which is kind of a joke because he certainly had, if I have defrauded anyone, Lord, I will, I will return fourfold of what I have defrauded. And so we have here just a few, just a few examples of how Jesus acted in the face of negative prejudice and perhaps even racist racist attitudes. In a short few years, his followers will get the moniker Christian, which first began in the city of Antioch. And many scholars think it uh, it was coined not by them, but by others who were not Christians, uh, who were who not belonging to the, their, their system of belief in following Jesus as a term of derision, those, those Christ chasers, those Christianoi. But the followers of Jesus said that's exactly what we are and they accepted the term Christian and so it began. But even before that they were known as followers of the way, the way, and it's always capitalized. This term is mentioned in in, uh, Acts four times by Luke, who wrote, of course, in Greek. The noun that he chose in Greek was hados, and its first meaning was a walked road. Uh, And when Jerome translated uh, from the Hebrew and from from the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament, into the Latin Vulgate, He translated the term Hadass as via, if you prefer the Italian pronunciation. Via meaning the same thing, a walked road. And as a matter of fact, and, and via like the Via Appia, the Appian Way, which extended south of Rome through the southern gate all the way down to the modern town of Brindisi in southern Italy. It was 350 miles long. You can still go there today, go through the southern gate, and walk for a few miles, in fact a number of miles, on the old Appian Way, the Via Appia. The secondary meaning of Hadass, however, and via was a custom, a manner, a way of doing. And so these early Christians were committed to thinking and acting according to Jesus' manner, according to His way, And even though we ourselves are now centuries removed from them and we have become very institutionalized but we who still take Jesus seriously and call ourselves Christian, whether we are Catholic or Orthodox or Episcopalian or Congregationalist or Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist or whatever, In the face of so much prejudice and racist attitudes that exist in our own society today, we too are still bound to walk the road, the Hadass that Jesus walked. Amen. Find more sermons on our website at www.stmarksnewcanon.org.